All right, my longtime friend James McCurdy is back on the show for a Coach's Corner episode. James, I didn't tell you this before we hopped on, as always, but I, we're about to record a podcast, do a little audio check, make sure everything's all right. You know, how are you doing today? All this stuff. Um, one thing I didn't tell James is that looking back on 2022, my most popular episode on the Rambling Runner podcast was the James McCurdy Coach's Corner prior to the Boston Marathon. So oh, that shoot. was a big one. Wow, that's that's honestly that's uh, I feel really I'm really good about that. That makes me feel really good. Well, usually these like you'll see some of these like, all right, what's the most popular podcast for a calendar year? It's inherently something that came out in January or February because they yeah. have this long tail, right? Like if it came out in like November, there's no way unless it's like this earth shattering oh, yeah. episode because it's only been out yeah. for six weeks, you know, kind of yep. feel to it. But this one came out like in April, so it was like not only was it the most, but it was like the only one that wasn't in quarter one that was in the top 10. So huh. a lot of people loved that one. That's really cool. Well, I mean, Boston, you know, I, I, I've called it in the past. I've called it every man's Olympics. You know, it's it's the pinnacle of, of racing and accomplishment for so many athletes, not just professionals, but um, the way they've managed it over so many years. Uh, it, it is the primary focus um, where where people will aim for five, 10, 20 years to get there. And it, it means the world to them, uh, whether they're, they're 45 or 65, uh, whatever that might mean for them, it, it means so much. So it's no surprise that that one for the, the listeners made, uh, made, made the waves. Yeah, that is for sure. And especially for people who are going there to run it because they want to make the most of the experience because they don't know when they're going to be back. Yeah. Yeah. That's always, that's always the issue, right? Like, uh, unless, you know, I mean, injury can always affect the, the fastest of anybody, but, um, you know, for, for, for those on the cuspers that are two or three minutes under their, their qualifying time, um, it's not a guarantee, you know? Uh, so it, it, every year it's something special. Right. And actually, and this was not intentional, but it, it absolutely dovetails into the conversation we're going to have today, which is basically yeah. talking about the efficacy, the positives and negatives, and a lot of the in-between gray area and individualized nature of whether or not, or ways in which, I should say, not whether or not, but ways in which goal times can be positive and or, for certain people, negative. And sometimes it's positive and negative for the same person at different points in their life. This is something that is top of mind for so many people because with the calendar year uh, starting up again, which is also for a lot of people, unless they ran the Houston Marathon or Half Marathon, is also coincides with their off-season. It's like the mm. perfect time of year to start thinking, All right, what are my goals for this year or for the next two or three years? And oftentimes, especially for amateur runners, we can talk about the difference here between amateurs and pros. So many layers of this conversation. A lot of yeah. times, goals can be centered around times, especially for marathoners who have like a BQ is a potential goal for them. Or on another level, maybe an OTQ is a, is a potential time for them. Or just the, the number, the, the round number of it all when it comes to marathons, right? The four hours, the three and a half hours, the, the, the four and a half hours, or the three hours, and all of these things where we've seen so many times where if you look at goal uh, finishing times for marathons, they're always centered around those big numbers for yes. a variety of different reasons. And that's a whole separate episode about why that could happen <laughs> because there's a lot of reasons for that as well. But I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, this is something that 
has come up on a lot of coaching calls for me, even when I'm talking to pros and you talk to both because you coach pros and you coach amateurs. So I guess before we get into this, has your thoughts and feelings about just goal times as something that is like basically using times as a goal, as a primary goal, has your uh, thinking on this shifted at all in your you know decades of, of coaching athletes? You know, that's a really good question. Has it shifted? Um, I think it's matured. Uh, I think early on, even for myself as an athlete, uh, the propensity was to fo- hyper-focus on a time at the beginning of a season or the beginning of a year. Like, oh, no, this year, this is what I want to accomplish. Uh, and I think I've matured uh, over the past few years, especially with let's recognize, recognize where reality of fitness is right now. Let's work as hard as we can appropriately over the course of this season or the next few seasons. And let's just find out how fast we can get. Uh, I, I like to take that approach with my athletes, regardless of ability. Um, you know, it might, it's an idea to have this, this concept of a time, but what if we can get faster than that time? What if we can blow that time out of the water? So let's not use that time as the be all end all, uh, but let's work on getting there to, to accomplish what it is we, we think we can accomplish uh, to the best of our ability. Um, there is some nuance to it, though. At a, at a professional level, I'm working with some athletes that are aiming for the Olympic standard. Uh, on the on the women's side, it's uh, 226.50, and on the or 226.20, and on uh, the the men's side, it's 208.10. And that's not just Americans. I've got a few international athletes as well. So while we are focusing on getting faster and developing them as athletes, as individuals, we still have that time in the back of our minds because that is the ultimate goal of where they're trying to get to, uh, to represent their nation, whether it be the United States or whether it be Lututu or any, anywhere else. Uh, so it does kind of come into play where there is a time goal, but at the same time, it's this development process. We can't let the time overshadow the development. That's, that's really my philosophy on it. Right. And then even when you're thinking about time goals, whether it's short-term or long-term, and we can talk about mm. the, the efficacy of both of those, um, some of them are you know, our own thinking on things, right? So like an example would be like, say I wanted to break 20 minutes in the 5K. That is an arbitrary time goal that is not connected to anybody else or anything mm. else, right? Yeah. However, unless like I have a bet, like James, I'm going to break 20 minutes before you break 20 minutes, right? The obvious copy. Yeah. The other thing is like you mentioned, like there are other goals or other times that are just within the running community that people might want to achieve for a variety of other reasons, right? Like you mentioned like the World Olympic Standard, right? You have the, um, the Olympic Trials Qualifying Standard the BQ standard, right? Someone wants to get, Boston is not the only race out there that with qualifying standards, it certainly is probably the most famous race that has it, but there's a lot of other races as well that have standards to reach, which can then also dovetail with someone's fitness or maybe not dovetail with someone's fitness, especially in the yeah. short term. So I think there's also two ways of looking at this in terms of, are they completely arbitrary or are they connected to some sort of outside endeavor? Yeah, that's that's a really key point because you know, if, if they're arbitrary, it, it, it's, it might be arbitrary to the outside view, but it might be something very personal. You know, you mm-hmm. wanting to break 20 minutes in the 5K is a very personal achievement and it means something to you. It's just how do we get there, right? How, how, do, you, how do you have the training to develop to achieve that standard? Um, 
you know, and, and when you're lining up, what does that mean you're trying to accomplish? And, and does anybody else affect how it is you're going about it? Um, versus, uh, you know, in a championship race with, with the professionals or even in, in the, the local club championship races uh, across the country, it's, it's more, you know, placement, uh, which determines the winner. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about long-term versus short-term thinking when it comes to time-based goals, whether they are completely arbitrary to the other end of the spectrum or somewhere in between, right? When we talk about goals, they're not all on the same time horizon, even if we're doing them at the beginning of the year. There are short-term goals and there are long-term goals, right? And you mentioned before, one of the things that you worry about occasionally is someone you know, instead of it being a, a stretch goal where this could maybe bring out the best in somebody, that maybe this time-based goal could end up evolving into being a limiting factor. So how mm. do you approach time-based goals when it comes to the short-term versus long-term horizon? And this may also dovetail into the distance of the race that we're talking about. Yeah, so recognizing uh, what it is we're trying to accomplish in the short term. Uh, what are the goal races? You know, is it a marathon? Is it a half marathon? How many races should we be doing leading up to it? I actually had this conversation with one of my athletes, Mora, who's a teacher out in Ohio. Uh, she's a fantastic runner. Uh, she loves racing though. And when we sat down and talked about the season, she wanted to participate in all of these races, uh, which I think can be beneficial unless it limits your ability to develop because her ultimate goal is to have a pretty big accomplishment in her spring, late spring marathon at grandma's. Um, so she kind of came to what I would call her senses a little bit. And she asked me, she said, you know, I don't want to just keep spinning the hamster wheel. What do you think I should be doing? And I said, listen, I, I, if it were me, if it were my ideal situation, I'd have you race three times between now and grandma's marathon. I focus completely on development and it uh, doesn't mean you couldn't participate in a few races for fun as workouts, but ultimately I think we should race a lot less so we can focus on development. So we try to recognize what it is we want the, the season to look like for that individual and what the expectation of the season is. And then we can then work backwards from there. Um, you know, some, sometimes athletes don't want to race at all and it's just all about development, 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 and then boom, let's just go find out what we can do in that environment, which for some people works really well. And for others, they need that race environment to kind of get the wheels turning a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm more a fan of when it comes to time-based goals, especially for our marathoning friends, to mm. think more long-term than short-term. And yes. then kind of like the shorter the race, the more short-term we can think about some of the time goals, right? So kind of like this sliding scale, right? Because, yeah. and basically all of it comes down to, not all of it, a major reason for it is just the recovery period and the amount of times we can go after that goal. Whereas like you have a marathon, like maybe three times in a year, you can go after it maybe and even if you do that that might bleed into how many times you can do it the following year right because yeah. all of a sudden that has you know the it's not like the deck gets cleared on january 1st from a recovery standpoint so you know it, it does kind of play a part in it so i feel like if someone's going after that merit like that that 5k goal right all right we can think really short term on that and we can kind of go after have a lot of bites at that apple whereas yeah. with that you know marathon goal it's like hey as we saw like with indy right indy traditionally 
And that's a wonderful race for someone to approach a time-based goal. The course is really well suited for it. It's the time of year that traditionally is from a weather perspective is really good. A lot of people, there's history behind it. A lot of people have done this sort of thing at Indy. So you have all of this buildup and then all of a sudden it's a horrendous weather day. And it's like, what are you yeah. going to do? And then even I have a runner who like went to Indy, had one of those days and comes back, tries to run Houston Got sick too, but even then, like a lot of people had a tough day in Houston because it was adverse weather conditions. And all of a sudden, if you're yeah. a marathoner, you're like, well, there goes nine months. <laughs> and I was so focused yeah. on a time goal. And this person wasn't focused on time goal, but it was a great example of if she was, it would have been a really, really tough thing to manage from a mental perspective and maybe even slightly demotivating going into the following year. Yeah, I think if, if th- th- there's a few things to kind of unpack there. If, um, if you're running any race and the 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 definition of success to you in that race uh, or in that event is the t- the only the time and you can't recognize or step back and recognize what factors might be limiting the the success of that result like weather maybe it's 20 or 30 mile an hour wind like really, really high heat and humidity, like we saw in Indianapolis, like we absolutely saw in New York City, like we we did see in Houston, right? Uh, and the wind that we saw in Philadelphia, uh, those are all factors that will affect even the best athletes in the world. So if it affects the best athletes in the world by a fair margin, why on earth would we set ourselves up to a higher standard of uh, of a definition of success that oh I, I shouldn't be that that those those conditions won't bother me or they shouldn't have affected me as much even sickness right turns out one of my athletes in Houston had COVID right uh, and you know we were expecting a a, a pretty quick time uh, for what what she's capable of I was expecting a personal best based on her training she's about forty minutes slower uh, than, than than what we expected well. Turns out that that she was incredibly sick, and 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 that's a reason for that happening. If we define success as only being the time and don't recognize some of those outside factors, then we can absolutely get get trapped in that uh, definition of are we a successful person? Are we are we valuing ourselves by only the number on the clock, comparative to just the effort that we're giving in the training and the effort that we are able to bring on that day? Yeah, let's talk about the day of in that situation, right? And this is a conversation that um, got sparked in our bi-weekly relay team call. So we have like mm. a great bunch of you know, people who haven't subscribed to relay, go and do it. We have so we have unbelievable contributors. And actually Kara Goucher brought up on the call just the difference between how how amateurs approach race day in terms of their goals that day versus like someone like when she was in her prime. And it wasn't like a positive or negative. It's just something that she has you know, come to notice as she has taken steps back from being a professional athlete and kind of viewed amateur running in a different sense and really kind of approached it in a, in a different way. And she was just like just noticing the differences and how like she, her, her um, observation of it was just like, wow, like this is so different than like how I would have approached some of these situations as a pro runner, even Emily Sisson in Houston in her conversations afterwards to the media was like, Hey, I knew the American knew what the American record was, but for me, I was out there to compete. And if it meant that the American record fell great, but it wasn't a time trial. She was out there to compete. And that was like that, that difference sometimes where it's like as amateurs, 
you know, what does competing mean on the day, right? I gave you this example yesterday. We were talking on the yeah. phone. Like, if I go to a starting line, who exactly is my competition when I go to that starting line? Right? Yeah. Is it other Masters runners? Is it the person next to me? Is it whoever I'm around with 800 meters to go? Right? If there is a kind of, like, differentiation process between who am I competing against. So the easy, I think that the path of least resistance, if someone is going to be competitive and approach a race with a competitive mindset, which you don't have to do, but if you are predisposed or like doing that, it's easy to just approach the clock as, okay, well, this is what I'm going to compete against. Who am I competing against? I'm competing against myself and I want to improve and the clock is a good way of doing that. And here we go. And there are a million reasons why that could be problematic. And we don't have to dive into all of them, but I think our trail running friends would immediately point to some obvious parts here. It's like, well, what about all the conditions that we're talking about? And like, what about yeah. the difference in race courses? And what about the differences here? And so many of these are not apples to apples comparisons. And it can get so tricky, especially for our marathoning friends, which is why we're focusing on this a yeah. little bit. Like our friends who just went down to Houston is a great example of this, where it's warm, but not like freakishly warm. It's yeah. humid, but not freakishly humid. And what I've seen in a lot of my conversations with people who listen to the show is that like a lot of people went down there for the marathon, not necessarily the half, and went there and said, hey, the weather is not wild enough for me to change my plan. I'm going to stick to my plan. So instead of trying to be like the best version of themselves on that day, it's like, all right, here's the time. I'm going for it. I'm going all in. And for a lot of those people, they didn't quite execute a race that they are that happy with after the fact. And it, it yeah. kind of feeds into this kind of the awkwardness of how to approach race day when you have a time-based goal in mind and you know that you might not get another bite at the apple for another four to six months. It, Houston was a really interesting example because while I respect Kara's view on the professional side of racing, put, your, put yourself in the position to be competitive, race with a lead pack or whatever that might be. Um, what, I, what I witnessed in Houston, uh, Specifically, I want to talk about Parker Stinson. When I saw Parker at the finish, he was standing with his coach, uh, Richie Hansen. Uh, Parker and I have been friends for many years. Richie and I have known each other and been friends for many years. Um, Parker was on hands and knees and all smiles and probably between throw-up sessions. Uh, but he, he, I, I pass him right now. I was, went to go see one of my other athletes that had just finished, and I gave him a little pat on the back. And he looks at me and he says, you know, I, all I had in my head in this race was how John Ranieri ran CAM, and I, I just wanted to to run within myself and not worry about what anybody else was doing. And I found that incredibly insightful because uh, Parker was not in the lead pack. He wasn't racing anybody. He was running his event to the best that he could run. And he wasn't in the top four or top five or top, I think maybe even the top seven for the vast majority of the race. He then starts catching people that went out way too fast for the conditions. Parker's uh, split a monstrous 15K between 10K and 25K. And then he started catching up to folks. Uh, and, he, and he had an amazing race. And he finished fourth, uh, second American to Tashome McConan, a new U.S. citizen. Uh, and he had a phenomenal race, especially given the conditions of the day, he ran two twelve to uh, twelve, uh, and it was remarkable how he how he raced. Um, that was and it was atypical smart. compared to how he was raced in the past. We should say yes, yes, absolutely. Because at the twenty five k at the U.S. Championship twenty five k last year, in very similar conditions, if not maybe a little bit more adverse, he went off and he started the race with a four thirty seven mile. Uh, which was, you know, well faster than American record pace, uh, which was which was a very interesting tactic to use on a on a condition like that, um, and it didn't go out very. It didn't 
it didn't end up very well for him that day comparative to his ability but this race he was controlled he was managed he was he was patient and he gave himself a chance to fight later on right we look at we, we all hail des linden as one of the best uh, uh americans in history of course why wouldn't we you know she won boston she's she's been on multiple u.s olympic teams uh i remember watching her uh many years ago in boston when she ran a 222 and i remember that the lead pack was 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 pulling away from her and the commentators were saying oh wow looks like des is really falling off the pace here she's really slowing down and i thought it was the dumbest comment in the world like open your eyes she's running her own race she's not she's not fart liking the boston marathon she's running within herself and she goes out i think she finished second that year this is why on this podcast i've said so many times at marathons i just want nascar type coverage i want to know the miles per hour of each person because i want to know is someone pulling away or is someone slowing down because you can't tell on the camera angle yeah and and it's hard i I should give the commentators some credit because it can be very challenging uh to understand exactly what's happening because they don't have that data in front of them what looks like des is slowing down is no she's just running smart right uh we see that time and time again we saw that with jared ward when he was at the peak of his uh, peak mm. of his racing right. and we saw it in multiple times over with scott fauble he wasn't trying to race the competition in boston multiple times in a row he was in the second group right i mean he, he was in 20th or 25th place this past boston through like the half marathon and yet he finishes seventh yet again in 208.52 i think it was seven don't maybe i'm misquoting the place but 208.52 Right, he crushed the competition. Where those who were racing that day, they they either dropped out or or they 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 blew up like crazy. Scott demonstrated time and time again. He demonstrates time and time again to run what you are capable of running, and that's how you're going to find the best version of yourself on that day. And I think that's very different than the quote unquote racing mentality. And 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 I think how you define racing matters. I define racing with my athletes that your decision or somebody else's decision, one of your competitors' decisions, affects how you run. If you are fartlicking your your competition and it changes how they race, then you are racing. Otherwise, you're running a time trial. Hey, folks, are you tired of the spike and crash and GI distress that comes with sugar-based sports nutrition? Well, let me tell you, I know I am, and it's why I use UCAN before and during runs. It's a big deal for me. Um, it's just It really does settle my stomach and, even more importantly, provides me the energy that I need to feel good on my runs and then even on race days. So if I have a big, long run planned, I usually do two skips, two two skips, two scoops. There it is of the UCAN powder, and then one of the little mini scoopers of the UCAN hydrate, which is an electrolyte mix, which tastes really good. Pop it in there, and then I feel really good on the run. And if it's a really long run too, I get one of the edge gels. These edge gels are UCAN's version of on the run nutrition, and they are fantastic. They're kind of like a liquid gel. And for me, it, it absorbs super fast. It doesn't have a lingering taste. The taste is fine, but it doesn't linger in your mouth. And it provides a ton of energy. I just used it on a run two days ago. I really, really like this stuff. And the bars, oh my gosh, the bars. <laughs> They're fantastic. Uh, it's easy to see why the UCAN got some awards for their Edge Energy Gel. It really is absolutely fantastic. In fact, if you go to our special, UK, our special URL, this is fantastic news. You can get six 
Edge sample pack. So basically six Edge energy gels for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping. If you go to youcan.co forward slash rambling to claim that exclusive offer. Also, if you just use code rambling, you can save 20% on all of your orders at youcan.co. If you're not sure what I said right there, just go into the show notes as all the links and all of the promo codes there. Again, it's just code rambling, save 20%. And your six free Edge gels at youcan.co forward slash rambling right right and i think it's a great point and it also is different for again now we're like diving all the way into pro running here but it also like Mm. depends on different parts of the race right like if you're at mile 24 and you're in the lead pack of a marathon it's like time trialing might be out the window here it's like one of these three people is going to win and who's going to make the move to do it right versus like hey we're at mile 11 and we need to figure out the best strategy to put us in position to maybe be at yep. that spot in mile 24. And I think it's smart to start with the pro running in this conversation because we can work backwards to the sub elite and to the, and the, to the BQ and then to the masses. Mm-hmm. Because that how you define that word racing matters in what it is you're trying to accomplish. Uh, I Great wouldn't point. say that a 330 marathoner is racing the competition when they are aiming for the BQ. That's a time trial. And you have to run the best race of a time trial to accomplish the task. Your decisions aren't affecting anybody else's event, right? So you are time trialing your goal to get your standard of time. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, it is interesting. I, I, this is kind of an aside because it does kind of goes along. It diverges wildly from the path you just set out in terms of how we should approach this. But I will say this is something that I also like to think about too is when I talk to athletes in terms of like what gets them pumped up like later in races or not even that, but like how someone approaches things. And part of this is based on my own experience versus like t- coaching other people, right? Some people like for me, passing people is like such a wild energy boost Mm. that like it's like all right putting myself in position to do that is like is hugely beneficial right so it's like it does provide me with that benefit so it's like all right like in the sense of like racing like all of a sudden again you put the you know once you have paced yourself accordingly there is a part in the race maybe it's the last 10 percent of the race depending on how long the race is and things like that where like the pacing is now off to the side and now it's just like, what do you have in you? And you're just going for it, right? And you're like, all right, yes. like whether it's like you like to be the person who's like trying to hold someone off, right? And you're like, all right, I'm being chased, and that's where a position I want to be in. I want to be out front, and I want to hold these people off. Or you're the problem like me, who's like, I I don't know why, but I'm just better, I'm better off with a couple couple people ahead of me, and I am trying to track them down. And like that's like yes. the position I like to be in. Yeah. Again, that is very different than what we're talking about right now. But I just well, I was like no, I couldn't I, I couldn't help I but interject that point. I don't think that's different at all. I think that's that's it's very wise because you know how many times have we heard the adage of well the first half of the marathon is is the twenty mile mark, right? right? Like it's it's being patient so then you can have the opportunity to run that much faster in the second half, which many consider to be the final ten k. Right. Right. All right. So from an from a race execution perspective, obviously if you're coming if you have a time goal time trialing the race makes all the sense in the world 
right? That, that, that makes all the yes. sense in the world. And unless you are in the top 1% of the 1% where racing the race also means setting an American record. <laughs> so you can kind of yeah. get two birds with one stone. That probably doesn't yeah. apply to many people here. Um, so, you know, good for you. Um, Emily Sisson, congratulations on your, you know, re-upping well, your American record. Here, here's what I think about Emily Sisson's Amer- uh, half marathon record most recently um, in Houston is I think she's actually got another 45 seconds in her. That's what I think. Like it may be more. I think she can run 66 low, uh, given the right conditions, right opportunity. I think she's got a lot more in the tank than what she just ran, uh, which I think is terrific. Uh, I'm really excited for her uh, in that opportunity. I saw some videos. I I didn't get to watch it live because I had family stuff going on that day, but I, um, was she with a lot of people? Because I've seen videos from the race, specifically from Kafuzi, who was mm. kind of near, I think he was downtown. And all the videos I saw from him were like, she was not near other people. Like, so was she, was, was, was there a competitive yeah. element with her? Or was she basically like alone for a large part of this? I didn't see a ton of video uh, because the, where I was at Houston, uh, in the room that I was in, they were, we had a few cameras on the, on the races, uh, and they were hyper-focused on the woman's leader who went mm-hmm. out much faster. Uh, and that Emily was actually catching her, uh, towards the back end. She was slowing down the least comparative to the two. Um, but there weren't a lot of men in that 66 to 68 minute range. There, there just weren't. Right. Um, because of the conditions. So uh, I think it there were a far more in that 69, 70, 71. Uh, and there were a handful of men that were sub 65 comparative to the race volume. But there weren't a lot of men with her. And there's not too many women that are going to run with her either. So right. Right. I think she might have spent the vast majority of this. Maybe there were one or two men for maybe six or seven miles. That's it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm going really far afield, but I remember those pictures from 2020, like the eponymous pictures of Sarah Hall with basically like the men's OTQ group. So she was running the half and they were running the full. So there's a million pictures. I've seen them honestly thousands of times where it's like, it's her, it's Tommy Rives and it's Peter Bromka leading out a group of like a dozen to 20 men, like through like the middle part of Houston, because like her half marathon pace that she was going for that day coincided with what they were trying to do from a marathon perspective. And it was like this really cool group of people running yeah. at the same time. And and I think because of the conditions, the men's OTQ group, one of my athletes who was in that group, I said, don't be next to Emily. She's going to be going too fast. Mm. That's not the pace that you should be running. So they were actually behind Emily by a significant margin. I think they came through um, at the 10K at 32.11. Uh, I want to say right around 32.11 at the 10K. And I think Emily was uh, was 31. 39 or something like that. So she was significantly far. Yeah. I I think that was around the time that she was in, um, which is also a top, uh, a top 10 all time 10 K on the road for any American woman, uh, by the way. So, yeah, yeah. Cause she thinks she said like the 50, the, either the 25 K and the 20 K and the 15 K like American record, like along the way. Yeah. I think, uh, it, was, I think it was the 10, the 10 mile equal to the 10 miles. She set the 15 uh, K and the 20 K American record on route right. as well. That's so funny. Yeah. All right. So getting back to time goals. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the whole point of this podcast, uh, you and I we do this all the time. <laughs> Every conversation devolves into like a fun conversation, but it, it never stays on topic. But anyway, so thinking about time goals from a marathon perspective, all right, let's talk about like 
well, we can use Houston as an example. We can use like the other 10 races we already talked mm. about that had adverse weather conditions because you have a situation where someone's going into a marathon. Okay, so they're only going to be doing this again, maybe twice a year, twice in a 12 month span. Oftentimes they are traveling to this race. Yeah. They're, you know, spending money on whatever travel modality they're using. They're spending money on a hotel. They are have like the mental and emotional drag of like, I'm spending so much time doing this. If I have a family, they're sacrificing so that I can go after my goals and all of this stuff. And there's a lot that goes into it. So all of a sudden, yeah. when you have adverse weather conditions that or someone gets sick but let's just focus on the adverse weather conditions because that can be harder to deal with in terms of a thought process or making decisions and things like that where you get in that situation where it's like okay like the, my, the thing that got me out of bed this whole time was getting this goal yeah. and it's not and, and i can't just stomach the idea of not going for it i feel like that that set of dominoes whenever we can should try to be avoided because it inevitably leads down this track where you don't want to be, where you're going to end up having a race. that's going to be really hard unless like the weather is so bad that it like can like jolt you out of that cycle. Right. But yeah. like, well, let's, like, let's like, like about... it was so bad that like it's jolted people out of that cycle, but Houston was not so bad where it didn't. And all of a sudden you have yeah. all these people who are so bummed out and it's like, ah, oh, we could have avoided that post race feeling that, is just so demoralizing for someone who may have done such great work the other 363 days of the year and they have these two races that don't fit what they're wanted to do and all of a sudden their view of running is negative when 98% of what they did that year was overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, yeah, I, I had a few athletes that really struggled with Houston um, and we as a business did uh, just like everybody else, right? Um, I think one of the things to recognize with with Indianapolis comparative to Houston is yeah, Indianapolis was maybe a little bit more severe uh, with the wind and the humidity and all that kind of stuff. But we were going into Houston during some of the coldest stretches uh, that we've seen for many, many years, right? I mean, we some parts of the country were like negative 10, negative 20, negative 30. And they were, they were training in that for weeks and weeks. And then on a warm day, it was like 15 degrees comparatively. And then all of a sudden they get to Houston and, and, it, and it's 55 to, to, to 60 at the, 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 at the start. And it's already humid. And then it gets up to about 70, 75 degrees at the four hour mark. Like that's a huge drastic change comparative to what the, 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 the months leading into Indianapolis or New York City were, uh, where you had September and October training, which is considerably warmer than what November, December training was leading into Houston for the vast majority of the people there. Doesn't mean that the people in Florida didn't have uh, affected times in Houston. It just means that those who are training in like Utah and Colorado or Michigan or the Northeast that flew out to Houston, that hit them in a, in a different way. Uh, a very, very different way. And it, when you saw those 30 to 40 minute blowups or, uh, you know, they were run walking after the hour and 45 minute mark, the sun came out and all of a sudden it increased by 10 to 15 degrees in real feel and the pavement's getting warm and all of that is just, you're suffering for the next hour and 50 to two and a half hours of your life. Yeah, it's going to hit you hard, especially when you're only used to 15 degrees. So I think one of the things to recognize is not to not to throw yourself overboard uh, and, and to recognize that that one moment isn't your defining moment of your life. It doesn't define you at all. It's just a moment. It's just something that you experience. Um, I would encourage 
even even coaches to have real conversations with athletes ahead of time to say, listen, this could be pretty adverse. Here is how I want you to adjust. I had an athlete run New York City, uh, Coach Dan Montgomery, and he ran New York City Marathon. And we actually expected to slow down by about 20 seconds a mile that day, maybe 15 to 20 seconds a mile. Turned out it wasn't enough. <laughs> Turned out he needed to slow down by probably closer to 30 seconds a mile relative to the conditions of the day. Now, oddly enough, he still went out and set a PR, uh, which was crazy. Um, but it was still like this, man, like those conditions crushed you. Doesn't mean that you're not in shape to run a 310 or faster. It just means that that day, that's all you that's all you you physically had. And it was an amazing effort, uh, but it's not who you are, you know? It doesn't mean that you need to, regroup your training to then all of a sudden train at a level that's 45 minutes slower than what you're capable of running. If that's what you ended up finishing in, in Houston or in Indy or any adverse weather condition just means that that day was a challenge. Um, and we never know how the body's physically going to react, right? In real adverse conditions. I remember Kellen Taylor in 2018, she was basically hypothermic at like mile 13, She's one of the best runners in, in the U.S. in the world. Two twenty four twenty, I think, is her, is her lifetime best. And she like, got I mean, like the Mountain Rushmore of toughness too. This was like not a lack of mental toughness issue. It, it wasn't, and it wasn't like she wasn't prepared. Right. Except her body just that day didn't have it, right? Uh, and that's okay. It's it's not a defining moment. It's a it's it's a moment she probably doesn't want to ever experience again. But it doesn't define her. She came back and and raced well, uh, very well. Um, I had an athlete that also ran New York city and we were expecting through training that he was going to run right around 310. That was the hope. That was the BQ, right? For him, he wanted to run 310 and get his BQ, but New York became New York. And he ended up running three hours and 27 minutes and he was disheartened. He was upset. Uh, he was angry. Um, not at me or at himself, but just that it just didn't come together. That's a very natural reaction. Well, we bounced back. Two or three weeks later, he ran Philadelphia and he ran a lifetime best of 303. So let me ask you this. With all of this being the case, we mentioned over and over again, races where like the weather is impacting performance for mm. everybody in a way that can make time goals completely untenable. So are you okay with marathoners having time goals or do you try oh, yeah. to pivot Absolutely. their goals to the other things? Absolutely. I think it's important to train for what you are capable of and and adjusting that training as the body is developing right absolutely i love doing that i do that a lot with professionals and and with the and the, with the 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 amateur athletes that i that i coach and serve um it, it's important to recognize that you're you're training at a, at the appropriate intensities the appropriate levels um but it's also appropriate or important to recognize on race day given the weather given the conditions that you have to sometimes step away from that time goal and recognize how to find your best that day. And sometimes that means running 10 minutes slower, 15 minutes slower, and that is still massively successful. When Dan ran 30 minutes slower in the New York, New York City Marathon, it was also his best finish by percentage he's ever had in the New York City Marathon. That was his 20th New York City Marathon, and it was the first time he finished in the top 8% of the race. That was massively successful. For sure. For sure. All right. Let me ask you this, because I think that two things got conflated there in terms of like how I presented my point. 
So like you mentioned, like you think it's important for people to train at their current fitness level and to adjust training accordingly as that changes. And I think that that is stone cold, cannot be argued that as absolutely how people should train. I guess when I said like time goals, I guess I mean in terms of like aspirational goals. Like someone's like, hey, I want to get a BQ in the next 18 months, right? Versus mm-hmm. like that, where like that could potentially, I guess it could be argued, and I'm not staying my, my perspective on this right now, but I'm just saying it could be argued that like that thinking could hold, could, could set someone up for perceived failure, especially yes. in the marathon where there's so many factors that are going to influence performance that are out of somebody's control. Yes. In that, in that specific example, in that concept of thought, my conversation goes to exploratory. Let's find out what we can accomplish. I don't like having a time goal. I don't, I don't, when it comes to 18 months from now, this is what I'm trying for. Great. Awesome. But what, again, what if we can get much faster, right? Like just by asking that question, the time goal goes out the window. It becomes about the person's, the athlete's individual ability to progress. And it no longer becomes about one. Well, I'm only going to find success if I run this time. All right. Right. If and that's different than like mindset, a time goal of like, all right, I'm deciding like, 36 hours before the race, this is the time that I'm shooting for based on yes. my fitness and all of the other factors. Like that's, yes, that's that, not what I mean. That's like a race strategy thing. I think of more of like yes. a goal is more of an overarching framework. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I think, I think when we, when we have a set time goal, um, that's so far out, we lose the process of the in-between, you know, if we're always hyper-focused on, I, I I think, I don't know where exactly I heard it, but I heard it in a movie the other day. And it was, it was actually, I was watching Lincoln with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. And he gave the example of a compass pointing true north, right? And he says, you know, what's the point of having a compass that points true north to the end goal when it pays no attention to all the obstacles, the swamps and the, and the, and the crevices and the holes and the, and the mountains and the rivers that you've got to cross in between. What's the use of knowing what true north is if you don't know how to manage all the stuff in between? You know, and sometimes for, for, for athletes, true north, their, their, their goal time is 18 months or two years away, but it doesn't matter what that time is if you don't know how to navigate the in-betweens. And it's important to to have a, a concept of how you're going to attack what happens on a month by month basis and a week by week basis, because life happens. It's never a straight line. You have to go around the obstacles that you're going to face. That's going to be sickness, injury, uh, weather, uh, disappointing results, uh, anemia, uh, whatever. Life happens and <laughs> we have to we have to understand what it means to adjust so we can ultimately get there. Absolutely. I think the two, there's two ways of looking at it, too, that kind of um, go right down that theme that you're providing. And one of them is our, our friend and colleague at McCurdy Trained, uh, Sarah Bishop, who has oftentimes talked about, you know, when she talks to athletes in terms of goals, she's totally fine with having these overarching, big, challenging goals. But for her, it's like, we're not putting the timeline in pen. We are putting the timeline in pencil or we're writing it in sand. Like the t- I don't want to hear about your timeline for this goal. I yeah. don't want to hear it. I, you want to have that big goal? Great. But we're not going to say big goal by X time. She's like, we're not having that for all the reasons that you just mentioned. And another way I think of visualizing this is sometimes I'll talk to athletes of like, okay, that's your goal. Great. You know, zoom out, have this big goal. If that's what helps you get out the door in the morning. 
use it right whatever need whatever whatever you need yeah. to be consistent then, then let's let's utilize that i was like but once you have that overarching goal or goals then zoom back in on what do i need to do today this week these next 10 days whatever your training cycle is and really kind of like again stay stay closer say stay say more zoomed in on what needs to happen so that you can lay the groundwork and do the things necessary to maybe reach this overarching goal but we're not going to spend time in the clouds thinking about it all the time we're going to set it we're going to let it go and then we're going to zoom back in and what are the steps that we want to approach our training and our life to get us down the path and, and potentially get that goal or put ourselves in position to get that goal yeah i i'm i'm experiencing this as an athlete again uh i just started running after many years of foot issues and injury and then COVID, honestly, COVID kicked my butt for nine months or so. Um, I was really kind of unable to be athletic for, for a long period of time. Um, and uh, not unlike many, many athletes out there, uh, but I, I feel healthy now. Uh, I feel good. I feel strong. Coach Esther Atkins is actually leading my training. Uh, we, we connected a, a bit ago and I'm, I'm having her as my personal coach, uh, just like uh, a paying athlete, just like anybody else. And um, we have some some visions of what it is I'm trying to accomplish this spring season. Uh, and one of the things that I'm doing is I'm running Boston as a, as a guide. And then I'm going to run grandma's as uh, as a, a, I don't want to say an arbitrary time pacer, but uh, I'm going to pace out a, a very specific time in grandma's. Um, but it's unrelated to my own self, uh, which I think for me as an athlete uh, is so different than what I've trained for, for for the vast majority of my life. So much of my training was about myself uh, as, as a normal athlete would have. But now for these first six months, my training is actually about other people. So it's not about my development as an athlete. It's about my development to help serve other people, which I'm excited about the opportunity to be able to do. And then once I kind of get to that area uh, of fitness where I, I feel good about that and I feel really strong about where I am, then I can kind of hone in, okay, and take stock of, okay, where's my fitness really? And now how do I get to where it is I want to be? And I'm going to be racing a marathon in October. So all the work I'm doing now is kind of zoomed into these months, these weeks, day by day to achieve what I ultimately want to achieve in October of later this year. I love that. And I think now is a good time to pivot to races shorter than the marathon and how time-based yeah. goals can fit into them. I think one of the, the biggest reasons that we keep talking about the marathon is that the, the time-based goals can be so influenced on factors and the recovery to your next race is so long potentially that it, it can be a very frustrating experience. Obviously, if you're talking about, I used my example before, which isn't a real goal for me, but say someone is like, hey, I want to break 20 minutes in the 5K. My current PR is 21.30, right? So roughly 25 seconds per mile faster, which is a huge increase, but yeah. not something that is like, you know, it's, it's a good stretch goal for someone. It's, it's a good way of putting it. However, like, you could run a, you could race a 5k like five to 12 times in a season and give out like a max effort and like those 5k's can help you get to the next 5k because it's a huge stimulus so all of a sudden while it is a time-based goal it's a stretch goal very similar to some of the ones we've already talked about the way to get there all of a sudden isn't quite as dive so dependent on outside factors that you can't control and the speed with which you can get back on the starting line again with another max effort is also so much shorter and obviously these yes. are two widely 
ends, you know, these are two like divergent ends of the spectrum here, but I think that this could potentially alter how someone might want to view a time-based goal in comparison to the marathon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the marathon is so invasive for, for the vast majority of those that run it. Um, but not to say that a mile or a 5K or even a 10K isn't invasive, but the recovery needs, not just from the event, but from the training itself, can sometimes and oftentimes be a lot less. Uh, I'm not. We're not talking about an entire season dedicated to 5Ks, but at the event itself, this singular 5K, you could probably recover after a max effort after like maybe five or seven days, and two weeks after that, be ready to roll. I mean, we see it all the time with high school kids. They're running. I wouldn't always agree with it, certainly, but they're running 5Ks and cross country uh, at the high school level one or two days a week. They're, right. they're racing. And, you know, so they might get eight to 10 or 12 races in a season. Um, and, and they're and they're still peaking, quote unquote, in championship season at the end of their season. So we can see a lot more racing opportunities in a, in a race like a 5K. And that does allow for a little bit more opportunity to, to learn strategy, to learn uh, what it's supposed to feel like, to make good decisions uh, and to learn what not to do so that you are prepared for the next one. Whereas a marathon, you don't often get that next chance unless you're Megan Christian, <laughs> who's, right. who's also running Boston. She ran New York, Indianapolis, or no, sorry, New York, Philadelphia, CIM, Houston, and now Boston. Uh, there's not too many athletes that are like her out there. The vast majority need a lot more time to recover and to learn from those mistakes uh, can, take, can take a little bit of time versus a 5K. You can learn pretty quickly. So we talked about a lot of different ways to approach this, the positives and the negatives and how things can evolve. Let's talk about how when something that can be a positive in this case, so someone trying to break sub three in the marathon, right? We both know people who've gone after this and who have gone after it with like with abandon, full force, even a pos- in, in, in a positive attitude. I want to say that they went that that they should change their approach in any way, right? A completely great way of approaching it. But then ultimately the milk starts to sour a little bit where all of a sudden a co- approaching this goal now has a negative tinge to it in a sense because mm. of frustration, again, maybe not with themselves, maybe just with outside forces, but all of a sudden this, this seemingly positive frame of mind and uh, framework for which they wanted to achieve a goal has now turned potentially into a slightly or even more than slightly negative framework where there's animosity, there's negative feelings and things like that. Um, so say you have someone who maybe in the might be in the middle of this, right? Who's like, hey, this, I had this positive thing. I was going for it. It didn't quite work out. Should I change my goal? Should I approach this differently? I don't want to resent running. This has been a positive force in my life. I don't want it to be a negative force. How do you approach that situation with runners who are kind of in the middle of something like that? Yeah, it's not uncommon. Um, I think stepping back is often the best way to manage that. Um, you know, there's physical injury, but there's also emotional injury and, and emotional scarring as well. And it, it can take a little bit of time for those things to callous over and to then ultimately loosen up a little bit. So you have that elasticity to be able to kind of go with the flow again. So if I have an athlete who seems a little bit more on the cusp of, yeah, I'm just kind of over marathoning. It, it hasn't worked out the way I wanted to. We'll try to divert completely from the distance. And maybe that means six months or an entire year away from doing that. Focusing on other things, getting back to 
fun and interesting training uh, or different training than they might be accustomed to. So we're constantly presenting new challenges. Right. Um, I honestly, I felt that with John Ranieri for, for a while because he, well, he had COVID like three times. So that really severely affected a year and a half of his racing. Uh, but with CIM, we weren't really sure what CIM was going to look like until the very end of his training. And then we had a lot of confidence what he was going to be capable of running. Um, but even before CIM, we said, you know, he started to gravitate towards trails. He started to gravitate towards running up mountains and whatnot. So he's going to run an ultra marathon in February, at the end of February. And it's something completely new to him. And it's a little bit more new to me, on, on the certainly on the professional end. Um, so it's, it's a new avenue to think about training, a new avenue to be excited about. We'll get back to the marathon once this this this. And we'll pause the ultra marathon chapter for a little while because he is going to run the Olympic trials. But uh, when it comes down to it, it sometimes stepping away from that one event can help that event come through. We saw it with Des Linden. She almost gave up completely. Josh Cox, her agent, had to convince her to not quit the sport and focus on other things because the marathon kept kept hitting her and hitting her and hitting her and hitting her. She took nine months away and then ultimately she came back and, and bounced back and won Boston. She was focusing on 5Ks for a while. She ran the New York City 5K US Championship in 2017. I think she ran like 16.10 or something like that, maybe 16 minutes. And then four or five months later, she stepped out of her comfort zone to do something she hadn't done in very, very long time, maybe not since college. And then she got back into, into what it is she really found her passion. And now she's actually, she was, she was, no, she just came out with a with a book. I think, um, choosing to run. I think that's the name of the book, and I, I'm ex actually excited to to crack it open to understand what where she's going with her thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, with all of this being said, I know everyone's probably thinking to themselves, like, Matt, just ask the final question. This is obvious where this is going. When you are talking to your athletes and they are saying, "Hey, what kind of goals should I be setting?" Right. So they mm. talk to you like, I want to be goal. I want to be goal oriented. I want to set goals. Are there certain ways that you tell them that are maybe a ben beneficial to approach goals in a certain way, kind of excluding the individuality that comes with this? So maybe it's a newer athlete on your profile, not yeah. something that you've known for years. And it's, it's a very individualized conversation. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I, I like to ask new athletes, people that reach out, uh, you know, hey, listen, in, in the next 18 months to two years, ultimately, what would you like to accomplish? What would you like to see have happened in your ability as a runner, as an athlete? What do you, what is your ultimate purpose out of all of this? This, this far enough away goal, because that allows me to kind of back that up and then kind of hone in on what the individual season goal might look like. Right. Well, if you want to do this in two years or three years, let's focus. Now we understand that. Let's recognize where you are so we can then focus in on, on what we need to do in the next three to six months. Uh, or And we can kind of work backwards from those goals. I like taking that approach because it allows me to have a recognition of where somebody's mindset is. I spoke to a guy the other day uh, who has this goal of qualifying for the Olympic trials. He's nowhere near that ability right now. Uh, now he's a talented runner. He's in the two thirties, but that, that does not equate to a two eighteen. But I look at someone like Pete Bromka and I say, well, he's no special snowflake. He just put the work in. It took him some years to get there, but he took the work in and he ran two nineteen oh one. So why he didn't make it, 
But that doesn't mean he can't make it. I still think Peter can make it. But why not understand where somebody wants to go two or three or four years down the road and then work backwards from there? Okay, that's where you want to be. Now let's understand where what it is you need to do. Uh, so that, that, that would be my approach, uh, whether it be a, someone I'm talking to for the first time, but all, sometimes I'm talking to, to the athletes I've been working with for three or four years already. I love it. James, if someone wants to work with you or one of the dozens of coaches that coach with McCurdy trained, what's the best place for them to go? They could pop right on to mccurdytrain.com. Uh, you can fill out, uh, uh, you can sign up right there on the Get Train page, or you can fill out a uh, 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 a contact inquiry form. And uh, generally, I'm going to shoot you a text to, to have a conversation, and we'll we'll talk about these goals. We'll talk about what it is you're looking to accomplish. Uh, I generally don't respond with an email. It's it's almost always uh, a text right right back to you. I love that. Yeah, I'm I'm much more of the of the talk on the phone variety. Then yeah. writing an email. So I'm right there with you. It's probably no surprise someone who has published over 500 episodes of a podcast. Um, James, <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of this. I know this conversation means a lot to so many people. So thanks again for hopping on, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I really, I really hope to be back sometime soon.